therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he promised is faithful and let us consider how many how we may spur one another and towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some of us in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. This is God's word. Happy New Year. Glad to be with you guys. Before we get started with today's message, um, coming into the new year, it's easy to feel super anxious because of like all the things that we're doing. And, and normally we don't start our services this way, but or the message this way. But if you just join me in before you get your Bible and your notebook or whatever, if you'll just uh, close your eyes and just place your hands out in front of you. And I just want to invite you to just slow down your mind may be racing you may be thinking of all the things you have to do all the places you need to go commitments you've made responsibilities you have you may just be coming in with a lot happening in your mind and with your hands open it's just a sign and symbol to God that you're ready to receive from him and so I just want to remind you that you are not early or late. You're right on time. There is nowhere else for you to be. There is nothing else for you to do but simply be here. And I want to invite you to join me in just praying a simple prayer, that that has been prayed in the church for millennia, is just come Holy Spirit. And as you pray that over and over, would you just release the things that are weighing heavy on your heart that you're bringing in with you and would you release them to God and would your hands be open to receive all that he has for you today. Come Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You're here, right? The great thinker and philosopher, Ferris Bueller, once said, Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Now, um, that quote is hidden within a classic John Hughes 80s movie. And so for the younger folk, if you have not watched Ferris Bueller's Day Off, it is a part of Rite of Passage uh, to watch that. But um, hidden in this movie that is cloaked with humor and a bit of absurdity is a really rather profound quote. 
And in all seriousness, I think that this quote gets at a shared longing that all of us have, and it is the longing to be fully present. We find ourselves at the beginning of another year, and if you're anything like me, um, it'll take me the first three and a half months to get used to writing 2024. I feel like I just figured out 2023 and it changed. If you're anything like me, uh, a great wave of anxiety hits you as you realize that last year already ended, you know, as New Year's Eve was already upon you. If you're anything like me, you did your Christmas shopping way too late, and that crept up on you too. And it just kind of seems like at the transition of a new year, we are just thrust into something new, um, a brand new month, a new season, etc. Now, what typically happens around this time is typically the New Year's is our, our time of the year is a time of reflection. You think about the year that has just passed, and you look forward to the year that is to come. Now, what typically happens as well is there was within you an immediate desire to implement change. Some of you have experienced that over the last couple of days. The new diet, right, to finally shed those pounds you've been looking to shed. Uh, the new workout routine, some of you came in aching, barely able to walk, really slow to sit because you went too hard going, coming back for your first time. And this sermon is not about New Year's resolutions. Best of luck to you on those. Um, I've committed to not doing them anymore because they're drastic failures. But diets and workouts have begun, budgets have been set, and I wish you the very best in those endeavors. But as a community, we don't want to just rush into the next thing. We actually want to slow down and reflect on the year that has passed and the year that is ahead. And so we're going to be doing that in the next several weeks by just slowing down and taking a look at why we do what we do when we gather. We begin a brand new series, sermon series today entitled The Sunday Gathering, Liturgy, Formation, and the People of God. And um, this series was born out of both looking back into 2023 and looking forward to 2024. First is looking back. As I reflected on all that God has done in the life of our community, I was just overwhelmed with joy and gratitude to do life with every single one of you and just to celebrate what God is doing among us. But if I could be totally honest, in reflecting on 2023, I did have a feeling of sadness. Sadness because, honestly speaking, only a fraction of our church was here for most of it. Our church, like a ton of other churches, experiences a lot of fluctuation when it comes to our Sunday gatherings. Some weeks, we are really full. Others, not so much. Now, the reason I feel sadness is not because the room's not full, but because it feels like family is missing. People who we long to share life with are missing from the table. And many of you know what this feels like as you've gathered with family or, or friends for the holidays and maybe um, somebody who's usually there or isn't there. You just feel that ache of missing. And that's kind of how I felt reflecting on the last year. We long for the whole family to be together. Now, I want to make it super clear. We don't take attendance at Zion. There's nobody in the back counting heads, seeing who's here, who showed up, who didn't show up. That's not our MO. That's not what we're about. I want to be really clear 
This sermon series is not a secret guilt trip to get you to come to Sunday services. That's not what's happening here. But what is happening is we're saying we want you here. That's what we're saying. We want you here. We realize life is messy. It's super complex. All kinds of things come up, yes. And we want you here. We want to do life together in community. And so looking back, there is that touch of sadness, but looking forward as well, we had concluded last year's uh, vision series, In Your Midst, and we had three invitations to response for us as a community. First is pursuing his presence through prayer, to which I am really looking forward to the official opening of our brand new prayer room. Yes. So... I, the, the secret's out of the bag. I didn't know if John knew, but uh, that's actually going to be opening next week. Next Tuesday, the prayer room opens, the brand new prayer room. Uh, we've opened it today for you to see all the hard work that has been going on um, and, and the, the many people who've contributed to making that happening. Um, and real quick, he's going to hate me for doing this, but I must. If we could just honor Max. He has been working so hard in that prayer room. He's going to be mad at me for doing that, but Max, we honor you. We thank you for all your hard work in there. And to several others who have helped out. Max has been there through and through, hot, cold, snow, don't matter. He's there working hard. The second invitation was for us to seed the future through generosity. And um, in the coming weeks, we're going to have our 2023 financial ministry report. Where we'll publish all that our community was able to do through your generosity. And I just want to commend our church for, for giving sacrificially at the end of last year. Uh, you were able to sow beautifully into the things that we have coming forward in the future. And all those details will be coming out in the coming weeks. But the last invitation was growing our family through invitation. And so in order for us to invite people into what God is doing, we thought it really important for us to establish a theology around our Sunday gatherings. Like, what exactly are we inviting people into? And many of you have questions as, why we do the things that we do? For many of you, um, Zion's expression of a Sunday gathering is likely different from one that you've been in. And you may have questions as to why we do the things that we do. And so over the coming weeks, we're going to be exploring each aspect of these things known as liturgy. Now today, I want to keep the talk super simple and talk about why we gather as a church. But before we get there, I think it's important that we address the various things in our cultural moment that present unique challenges in us gathering on Sundays. And I just want to talk about three. First, Digital disembodiment, second, rampant consumerism, and third, radical isolation. First, digital disembodiment. We live in the digital age. Things have drastically changed for us since the invention of the smartphone in 2007, and most of our lives are lived through screens. Chances are, looking at a screen was probably one of the first things you did this morning, and chances are, it is one of the last things you did before you went to sleep last night. Everything we do often flows through screens. Our whole lives have become integrated with tech. We communicate through our devices. We unwind through our devices. We pay bills through our devices. We work through our devices. We date through our devices. And with the rise of the digital age, more and more of our lives are becoming disembodied. And what I mean by that is there are more and more of our lives being lived through a screen. 
At any given moment, we are transported, transported from our physical cir- circumstances into a world of our curated preferences, right? Instead of waiting at line in the doctor's office, you're watching Sunday football highlights. Instead of standing in line at the grocery store, you are reading news updates. Instead of waiting for your meal to arrive at a restaurant, you are binge-watching your favorite show. And instead of commuting to work, Instead of focusing on commuting to work, you are immersed in a compelling podcast. We are continually transcending our bodies and our thoughts and our physical presence and plunging ourselves into the world of our curated interests. And the result is it is making us increasingly impatient. The data is in. The digital age is indeed rewiring and reshaping us to be an impatient people. I want you to imagine for the moment that you walk into a local coffee shop, and as you sit there, you intend to send some emails and get some work done, and their Wi-Fi stinks. You are unable to connect. You get the pinwheel of death on your Mac or whatever, and it just doesn't seem to be working. Now, as frustrating as that might be, I want to remind you that just a couple of decades ago, to have a computer, you needed a room about this size with about 20 servers just to do some basic computing. And now you have a supercomputer in your pocket. You could literally do basically anything on your phone now, and we're like, it's taking forever to load. There was a time you had to dial up internet Meaning you had to like call the internet server, right? As you're waiting for something to load, and then the screen is barely loading, right? Just to get to Google, the search engine. And now it's like, oh, the phone's lagging. And you know, it's like, think about what we're doing here. Take a step back for a moment to see what's happening. This kind of access to immediacy has made us incredibly impatient. Now, the church along with the rest of the world, has plunged headfirst into technology. Everything in the church is about speed. The whole service is maximized for efficiency, right? If the pastor begins to go a little long, you're looking at your watch, guilty as charged, Um, right? It's like things are having to go. I got things to do, places to be. You know, let's get the service moving along. In the church, we have prioritized growth, productivity, and reach. In doing so, Many churches have made the shift online. Now, for a lot of churches, ourselves included, the pandemic accelerated this shift, and we are being told this is where the future of the church will be, is online. There are leaders um, in the church sphere that are saying if you don't embrace online church, your church will close its doors in a matter of a couple of years. Recently, I was listening to a popular church leader's podcast, and the host was interviewing a rapidly growing church here in the States, And the pastor of that church continually compared his congregation and his church to Amazon and Uber, saying that the fastest and most profitable companies in business world are leveraging the digital age to their advantage, and they are doing the same. My question is, what are we losing in the process? What happens when the church begins to think like Silicon Valley? The next thing is rampant consumerism. As digital technology continues to expand and create opportunities for growth, the reach of the church, uh, the, the, 
and growth and reach. The church is, has dove, dove into this as well. The idea that through digital technology and online presence, community can be built. That's kind of like the underlying idea behind it all. That a gathering, being together, being the church, can all be done online without any human presence or physical proximity. In essence, the belief is that the Sunday gathering has become a product to consume. J.Y. Kim, in his book, Analog Church, says this, an online church is more a product to be consumed than it is a people to be joined. Community isn't about getting a product out there, but about gathering people wherever they are. Yet, so many of our churches continue to push into online spaces and call it community and connection. And in doing so, we're doing tremendous damage to the very communities and connections we so desperately long to see. Sherry Turkle writes, when online life becomes your game, there are new complications. If lonely, you find continual connection, but this may leave you more isolated without real people around you. So you may return to the internet for another hit of what feels like connection. The more our churches promote and push people towards online spaces for community and connection, the more lonely and isolated they will be in the end, as they continue returning to these online spaces to fulfill what they never actually could. Now, this idea, I think, was never more clear than when in 2021, uh, a prominent church launched their online location. Uh, Prominent pastor Judah Smith, which I have nothing ill to say about, I think his heart is right in this area, I just disagree with their practice, said this when they're launching of their online ministry. We have a new location, and the location is everywhere. That's right, it's global. You can go to your favorite app store and you can download it today. There's going to be daily content, fresh content, brand new content, every single day. One of my favorite parts is before the live services begin, you can meet new people in the lobby. I know that sounds crazy, but there's actually a lobby where you can connect and meet people. No judgment on the man, but I want you to notice the language of content. It's all about content. If the church is a product, then the Sunday gathering is the content. I'll never forget in the middle of the pandemic, I tell this story often, poor Calgary was subjected to hearing me preach alone in my office. Little iPhone, Calgary just sitting there trying not to make eye contact to make this as least awkward as humanly possible, and he listened to me preach for about 45 minutes. That's when I liked the first take. There was sometimes more than one take. Calgary, I apologize, repent to you, brother, for you having to do that. But I remember telling him, I was not made to create content. I hate this. And it wasn't because, um, I don't know, I felt any type of way about like recording things. It's because God has called me to pastor people. What I love about our Sunday gatherings is this real connection we get to share. What I hated was preaching to a lens. I realized that some of you were behind the other side of that, but there felt like a chasm between us. And so, I realized very quickly, I am not one of these Christian leaders who can produce content. I hated every second of that, and Calgary can attest. But if the church is a product, then the gatherings are its content. Again, J.Y. Kim says this, 
Church communities cannot be built primarily around content. Because while content is great and can inform and even inspire, content alone is never enough to transform us. Transformation in the life of the church is always an analog experience. As we journey shoulder to shoulder with other people, gathering in real ways as real people to invite God to change us individually and collectively, we experience this transformation in a variety of ways, singing together, listening and speaking of God's grace and truth, the breaking of bread, the sharing of resources, the giving of our time and energy and creativity, remembering and celebrating via the sacraments, and on and on. But all of these ways, in some form or fashion, tangible or physical, content matters in as much as it moves us towards real participation and action within an actual church community. Now again, I believe these church leaders' hearts are in the right place, but what do we forfeit when we begin to talk about our gathering as merely content? Third is radical isolation. Now, you would think in the digital age, we should be the most socially vibrant community ever, right? You could talk to anyone around the world right now. Don't you think that that would breed us to be the most connected and socially vibrant society ever? The data shows otherwise. We live in what many call the loneliness epidemic, where uh, leaders of nations are appointing um, committees responsible for trying to address the loneliness epidemic that we experience. Things like about 40% of Americans report not having somebody to share personal life things with. And that number continues to increase over time and over time. Now, several years ago, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, delivered a speech in Chicago where he presented Facebook, now called Meta's plans to broaden their platform, platform's ability to connect people to one another. And what I want you to notice is how these social media platforms talk about themselves. Listen to what he says. If we can do this, it will not only turn around the whole decline in community membership we've seen for decades, it will start to strengthen our very social fabric and bring us closer together. Facebook is the new church. Now this vision of Facebook became abundantly clear when in 2021 they launched the metaverse. During this, uh, their launch ad, this is what Zuckerberg had to say. He says this, we believe the metaverse will be the successor to the mobile internet. We will be able to feel present, like we're right there with people no matter how far apart we actually are. We'll be able to express ourselves in new, joyful, and completely immersive ways. When I send my parents a video of my kids, they're going to feel like they're right in the moment with us, not peering through a little window. When you play a game with your friends, you'll feel like you're right, in the, right there together in a different world, not just on your computer by yourself. When you're in a meeting in the metaverse, it'll feel like you're in the room together, making eye contact, having a shared sense of space, and not just looking at a grid of faces on your screen. That feels kind of eerie, doesn't it? And it's almost like he's blind to what he's actually saying. It won't be like this. It'll actually be like this. Except it's exactly what you're saying it not is. It's not. Your grand, the grandparents aren't there with the grandkids. You're not in a room gaming with your friends. Right? 
There is no eye contact being made because there's no eyeballs being present. You are, all of this, all of this is moving through screens. But notice the language. They want it to feel real, actualized. They're giving us a counterfeit of embodiment. Technology is trying to sell us reality repackaged when we already have the real thing, when it's already available for us. Now, all of these things are, are, are happening around us. And a part of this loneliness thing that we are experiencing is due to our awareness of our self-image, right? That all of us are, are creating environments on social media of competition, comparison, and contempt. We see aspects of each other's lives, but no one ever truly feels seen because all of it is curated. When was the last time you posted a picture where you had something in your teeth or bedhead? Chances are, never. But being a real human being means that stuff happens sometimes. Now, we can feel like we're seeing other people's lives, but we're never really truly feeling seen. And so as a reminder, true human connection is always fueled by intimacy. And intimacy demands proximity. The act of stepping into a real community with real people bearing your real life in real time and in real space. Now, a brief word about tech. So are we just gonna put a big trash can here in the middle, launch all our smartphones in, light it up on fire, and say, right, to heck with tech? No, I'm obviously preaching this from an iPad, and I wrote this on a Mac, so that didn't really happen for me, for sure. It's a call for us to consider our relationship with tech, certainly. Now, critics of what I'm saying will say, well, what about the ways that technology has, has pushed biblical teaching all around the world, and there's even translations of the Bible in every language because of tech? And I'm like, yes! Absolutely, love that, for that. That's the best part of tech. You, like, I love being able to pay with my phone at the grocery store, not having to like, that's awesome, that's cool, like, that's the best part of it. But there's a shadow side of it too. And I know that there are, are, are people thinking about this that, um, that would look at all the helpful and beautiful ways that tech has been transformative when it is appropriately realized. And to that I say amen. But here's the question I wanna ask. Wherever this tech is going, let's say it's going to an underground church in China, and they're getting biblical teaching, and they're with Bible translations in their hands on their phone, that's all great. If you were to ask those people what they want most, it would be an embodied gathering. That's where it always leads. Like, this is great, I love this, but I want to be with other followers of Jesus too. I want to actually meet the people that I see on this Zoom call face-to-face -face and get to see their kids and get to share a meal together. It is always a call to being embodied again. And this is how we know this. Because all around the world where Christianity is illegal and persecution comes, what are they always doing? Gathering in person. Even when technology is available and it would be much safer to dial into a Zoom call, they risk their lives showing up for what we take for granted. They see the Sunday gathering as far more vitally important than we do. And they have access to all the same tech. The question is, why? Why are they willing to die for it? Because they see its beauty. So, what do we do as a church? Well, to quote J.Y. Kim again, this is where the church can 
and must step in to offer a new vision for what community can and should be, an alternative, transcendent space where unlikely people gather to listen and speak, to reflect and to respond, to journey together for the long haul down the path of wisdom. So before we get into the nuances of the gathering, it's important that we answer this question. What's the church? What comes to your mind when I ask you what's the church? For some of you, you think the building. If you drive by this space in your daily commute, you might say, oh, look, we just passed the church. Or I'm, I'm talking to a friend, I'm just passing the church. For others of you, it's an event. You're describing our Sunday 10 o'clock gathering. It is something that we do together, right? If someone asks you at work, what did you do yesterday, tomorrow, you'll say, I went to church. For others of you, it's an institution. You think about the church as an organized side of things, leaders, pastors, priests, organizations, 501c3s, etc. But how did Jesus and the early church see themselves? Well, the word they used was ecclesia. Can you say that? Ecclesia. Now, the word literally means assembly, gathering, congregation, church. So the, ga- the, the church is simply a gathered people. Now, are all those things I mentioned part of gathering? Yep, we need a space to do it. We do things when we get here, making it kind of like an event. And when you gather people, anyone who's ever thrown a party knows you need organization. Somebody needs to be worrying about how we're going to keep all these people together and get things moving in a direction, right? So all of those components are important aspects of the church, but they aren't the church. The church is the gathering. Those are aspects of the church. So um, J.Y. Kim again says, Ecclesia, or church, in a biblical sense, is almost always a group of people who are gathered regularly to worship share their lives with one another, and, live, and learn and live the way of Jesus together. So in the scriptures, we see a model of the church that is both gathered and scattered. In the book of Acts, we see the church coming together to meet in temple courts and then going to break bread in one another's homes, gathering as one, scattering into smaller groups. This is a model we've adapted. We have our Sunday gathering And we scatter into our community groups throughout the year. This is the biblical model that we see. Sunday gathering and then gathering in homes. Now, what I want to do for the remainder of our time is look at this passage in Hebrews where this this pastor is writing a letter to this community to remind them of who they are and why they gather um, in the midst of what's happening all around them. To provide a bit of context on Hebrews. There's so much in this letter that we do not have time to talk about today. It is an incredible letter. Uh, It is a challenging letter if you're not understanding all the hyperlinks to the Old Testament, but beautiful. I do want to set the scene in this way. What we know about the letter is that uh, in just a few verses uh, above where we're going to be spending our time today, that this community is under heavy persecution, that followers of Jesus are being imprisoned and their lives are being threatened for the gathering for gathering together, for professing what they believe. And so the pastor is writing to this community to strengthen them as they are under persecution. Now, throughout the letter of of Hebrews, you often see the author saying to persevere, to keep moving forward, and an invitation to see things as they actually are and why Jesus is the fulfillment of all they've been looking for. Again, a lot happening in this letter. 
But in the midst of all of this, the author of Hebrews reminds them of who they are and why it's important that they gather. The first thing he reminds them of is that the church is a redeemed family. Notice what he says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have this confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. First thing is this family is redeemed. What the church is at her core is a people who have been redeemed by Jesus. The author of Hebrew reminds us that what has taken place in the life of Jesus, Jesus, that through his life, his death, and his resurrection, he has reconciled us again to God, redeemed us from our sins, and welcomed us in to his family. The church exists today because of what Jesus has done. Now, the second thing he tells them is that they are family. Notice the language he uses. He calls them Brothers and sisters, it's the word Adelphoi, it means siblings, it is familial language. The most common way the church is referred to in the scriptures is as a family. And he begins this section reminding them as such. Eugene Peterson, talking about the church and family, says this, We can no more be Christian and have nothing to do with the church than we can be a person and not be in a family. Membership in the church is a basic spiritual fact for those who confess Christ as Lord. It is not an option for those Christians who happen by nature to be more gregarious than others. It is a part of the fabric of redemption. For God never makes private, secret salvation deals with people. His relationship with us are personal, true, intimate, yes, but private, no. We are family in Christ. And when we become Christians, we are among brothers and sisters in faith. No Christian is an only child. So the question is not, am I going to be a part of a community of faith? But how am I going to live in this community of faith? Now, the problem with a disembodied gathering is that it rejects the reality of family. First, is that family requires presence. Now, when we've curated our worship experience to be behind the screen, here's what we have happen. You just watch the things you enjoy, the teaching you like, the worship you like, and you could even do like a hodgepodge. Like, dude, I like Maverick City music best, but I like to watch, you know, so-and-so's teaching. And you can kind of just have this hodgepodge of your own curated desires. But an embodied gathering requires presence. Again, Kim, digital communities are convenient and customizable. They are based on your preferences and designed to be easily and quickly chosen or unchosen. Don't like something someone said on Facebook? Unfriend them. Annoyed by someone's endless stream of gratuitous food pics on your Instagram feed? Unfollow them. Irritated by the opinions of someone on Twitter? Block them. All these options can be activated with the push of a button in a split second. But analog communities are different. When we show up in the flesh, it's not easy to unfriend, unfollow, and block. Because despite our differences and incompatibility, here we are. Despite our disconnections and often divergent perspectives on things, we're gathered together and committed to give a portion of our lives and energies to a particular people in a particular place at a particular time. This is what families look like. Like it or not, we're connected. That is, this is a risky decision to be sure, but analog communities are not based on preferences, but on presence. You show up to a place with a people. 
That's what marks a family. Second is that family requires difference. Everyone knows you don't choose family, right? Some of you just went through the holiday season, and there's that family member who you didn't choose. They've been chosen for you. You know the topics to avoid with them, right? I.e. moon landing or whatever it might be, politics, whatever it is. You know the landmines to avoid there. You know the, the, the briefing you have to give a new person to the family, right? Don't look at so-and-so in the eye. Don't do that. Like, don't do this. Don't eat the enchiladas. Trust me, right? Whatever the thing is, you give your friends warnings or whatever of what it is. And so we all know that we don't choose family, but we're bound together. And this is the one of the most beautiful aspects about the church, is that our difference brings us together. That likely, you're friends and you have a relationship with people in this community who otherwise you would have never chosen to hang out with. They don't like the music you don't want, they like. They don't think the way that you think. They don't enjoy the things that you enjoy. But guess what? You're family. And this is one of the more beautiful things. Scott McKnight says this, the church is God's grand experiment in which different get connected, unlikes form of fellowship, and the formerly segregated are integrated. They are to be one. Briefly, think about Jesus' disciples. You had uh, somebody who was a tax collector, meaning they were working for Rome, working for the oppressor, and they had someone known as a zealot. A, a, a political rebel, also known as a Sicario, because they'd keep daggers in their cloaks and stab Roman soldiers. You had them sharing a meal. You think those conversations got heated? Absolutely they did. And this is what we see in the first community that Jesus brings together in his disciples. They're all vastly different and come together as a family. The next thing that he reminds the community of is that they're a living temple. Look what he says. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We don't have time right now, but there is so much temple language here that we don't have time to tease out. The usage of drawing near, being sprinkled, being cleansed, being washed is all temple language and all language of worship and presence. The scripture Oh, sorry, Mary Healy. The scripture, the verb approach or draw near is an idiom for come to worship, as in Leviticus 9 and Hebrews 12. Thus, we are invited to draw near not only in personal faith, but also in the public worship of the Christian community. So all the language being used here in Hebrew, Hebrews is temple language, is worship language, is invitational language to come and worship God. As a reminder, the Old Testament, the temple was the place of God's presence, and so the idea here is that when we come to worship, um, we are worshiping. This is the new temple because of what Jesus has done, that the people of God are now the place of God's presence. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that his spirit dwells in your midst? So when the people of God gather, God is within their gathering. This needs to elevate your perspective on what's happening here. This isn't just coming to hear a TED Talk and some good songs to encourage you as you try to follow Jesus in your daily walk this week. This is we, and, and the language here in 1 Corinthians is not you as an individual, but y'all are God's temple. As a gathered, embodied people, we inhabit God's presence in a particular way. Now, God's presence is everywhere always, but something unique happens when the people of God come together. 
Next, we're running out of time, is that we are a compelling witness. He says this, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who's promised is faithful. One of the first things that the church shows to the rest of the world is that of unity. Think of Jesus' words, you will know my disciples by what? By the way they bicker and fight with one another. Right? No, by the love they have one for another. A unified church is a testimony to the rest of the world that the gospel is real, that the good news about Jesus has big implications. You cannot live the Christian life apart from the family of God. You just can't. All throughout the scriptures, there's what's been known as the one another passages where um, there's specific commandments given to the people of God. These are all impossible to do by yourself. Notice what he say. Serve one another. Bear in love with one another. Sing, uh, speak and sing the words of God to one another. Make music together. Teach and challenge one another. Keep one another accountable. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Do not give up meeting together. Be hospitable to one another. Experience fellowship together. Confess to one another. Pray for one another. Eat and drink together. All of those things are not individual enterprises. They're all bound within the family of Jesus. There is no way for you to follow Jesus on your own. In the words of Eugene Peterson, no one, no Christian is an only child. You're invited into a family. Next is that we are a sign of new creation. Real quick, a lot of people wonder why we gather on a Sunday. Like, what can we do like Saturday or Tuesday or Monday? The short answer is because new creation began on a Sunday. When Jesus rose from the grave, it was uh, the inbreaking of new creation. Jesus is the first fruits of new creation. And so we gather on the day that Jesus resurrected from the grave to proclaim to the world new creation has come in his life. And so it's not arbitrary. It's just not some guy decided Sunday and just did that. It is integral to the very message that we, according to the Hebrew authors, profess, proclaim, witness to. This very gathering is a reminder to the world that Jesus rose from the grave and brought in new creation. Last, sorry, is kingdom. Skipping forward here a bit. When the church of God gathers when the people of God gather, is a declaration that the kingdom of God is here and on their way. Sky Jathani says this, the church is the assembly of women, men, and children redeemed by Christ, filled with his spirit, and living in communion with, one, with him and each other in a way that reveals to the world the invading reality of God's kingdom. That kind of community requires us to be full participants and not merely spectators. Last is that we are a faithful presence. The author of Hebrews says this, let us consider how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and, the more, and all the more as you see the day approaching. First is a call to think about your impact on others. We often think about the Sunday gathering as for me. You leave here. Someone asks, how was church? Someone went a little long. Didn't love the worship selection. There was no more coffee by the time I went out there, so I was kind of bummed about that, right? It's like that's how we talk about the church, as it's merely something to, to consume, right? I wish the room was a touch warmer or whatever the thing is. It's all about my experience. Now, I understand what people mean when they ask the question, like how was church? They, they just want to know what was the experience like. 
But that's how we talk about it. But the shift in your mind is what if the Sunday gathering wasn't something for you to experience, but something for you to participate in? That when the church gathers, you're actually here to be thinking about others. Notice what he says here. Consider how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds. The call of the Sunday gathering is not just to fill a seat, but is to participate what God is doing in this community through thinking deeply about how you might help the other people around you towards becoming people of love and towards living, in good, living, living out good deeds, living in a way that blesses others. It is for you to identify gifts, callings, circumstances, situations, and to bring life out of them through your own gift set. And the invitation is think deeply of your influence on others. You of all chances are come to a Sunday gathering, and something that seemed insignificant to an outsider looking in meant the world to you. A couple weeks ago, you mentioned an upcoming thing that was stressful for you, and you came into the Sunday gathering, and someone remembered and said, how did that go? Right? You've been really discouraged about something and you're sharing how hard work has been lately and somebody encourages you, you're doing a great job. Whatever it is, you have been given life because of the community and because somebody was present enough to pay attention and think deeply about you. Are you doing that for others? Or is this merely something for you to consume? The second thing is that we are just to simply show up. Notice what he says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Here's one thing the pandemic brought. It created a habit of not having to show up. That's exactly what it's done. It's like Sunday, do you want to get up or brunch and mimosas, right? Or something like that, right? Something else comes better along and it's like, we're going to do that. Because it's built into a habit that this is not important enough to show up to. The simple answer is just show up, arrive here. I want you to remember who this is being written to. This is not being written to us who are like, oh, I could just watch it from home and stay in my pajamas. It's towards people who, if they gather, they're at the risk of losing their life. And he's saying, don't give that up. It matters. It matters what we do here. It, this, this gathering really matters. So don't give up. Short story. There's a story of D.L. Moody, who's a famous uh, American evangelist, who uh, had somebody invite him over to their house because he wanted to discuss theological realities. So Moody shows up, and they sit by a fireplace together, and the other guy on the other end starts to make his case at why he doesn't need to show up to the Sunday gathering, that it's not important to him. Now, there's all these ways I can grow my faith or whatever. And so he's going on his spiel. He's got his PowerPoint presentation going through all his slides of why he doesn't have to show to church. And as he, in the middle of him talking, D.L. Moody goes to the fireplace, he plucks out a coal, and he sets it on the ground in front of him and sits back down. And as he's talking, he's making a complaint, and this is all the reason to see this passage, I think, is actually mistranslated, because when you think about it, he's doing all that kind of stuff. And the coal is just sitting before them. And Moody stays silent. As time goes on, and this man finishes making his case, he notices that the coal has gone out. It's been removed from the fire. And the man says, I see your point, D.L. Moody. Conversation over. Showing up matters. We are called to then encourage one another. The shift in thinking for us is not what can I get out of the gathering, but how can I participate in it? Again, Sky Jathani says, the kind of faith-building encouragement commanded in Hebrews, however, is personal, relational, and reciprocal. 
It is not accomplished by passively sitting in a theater seat and watching a performance. This kind of encouragement requires for you to be fully present and engaged. It's the arm around the shoulder, praying together with tears, let me help you carry the burden kind of gathering. It's the kind where no one is invisible and everyone is seen. We are called to encourage one another. Now, I want to get to now how the gathering forms us. So first is the rule of formation. You are being formed. Everything that you do becomes a habit in your life. You may be realizing this as you're coming into the new year, that you've built some good habits maybe, and maybe some not so good habits. And so what you do forms who you become. And so for us, we have to think carefully about the things that we are doing. Tish Harrison Warren says it this way, we are shaped every day, whether we know it or not, by practices, rituals and liturgies that make us who we are. We receive these practices, which are often wrote, not only from the church or the scriptures, but from culture, from the air around us. Therefore, the question is not whether we have a liturgy, a way of doing things, but rather, what kind of people is our liturgy forming us to be? We think through our Sunday gathering. It's not as we just show up here and be like, what do you want to do today? You want to sing today? Ah, I'll sing today. You want to talk today? Yeah, let's talk today. We should like, have a time where we like, respond to something. That's a great idea. You know? It's not like that at all. We've thought carefully and long and hard about every single aspect of the gathering because we realize what we do forms us. And so the question we're always asking is how is the liturgy, the way we do things at Zion, forming the people of Zion? That's the question that we're always coming to. Now, um, in the coming weeks, we're going to tease out all of the different aspects of what we do. But here's, when I say, here's the point that I want to make today. At the core of all of the things we do is this reality that we are embodied. Does anyone know the first thing that comes out of the host's mouth when we gather? We are embodied beings. It is a reminder to you, you're not a brain on a stick, you are a body. Yes, you are a soul and you are a body. You are a fully integrated person. We did a ton of work on this back in the God and Sex series called The Theology for the Body. If you want to know more, please go and listen to that. Don't have time to nuance all that today. But we're thoroughly embodied. And rather than me try to tease this out for the next 10 minutes, I quote Tish Harrison Warren, who says, at root, Christianity is a thoroughly embodied faith. We believe in the incarnation. Christ came in a what? Body. And while he may not have brushed his teeth with a pink Colgate brush like mine, he spent his days in the same kind of bodily maintenance we do. He slept. He ate. He groomed. He took naps. He got his feet dirty and had them washed. And he liked and enjoyed a good long dinner. Wine, I think, is what that's supposed to say. Uh, and we are derided by... We are, we, he, what he, we was, that doesn't make sense, derided by his more aesthetic critiques as a drunkard and a glutton, i.e., Jesus liked to have wine and eat with friends, so they called him a drunkard and a glutton. In the scriptures, we find that the body is, is in the scriptures, we find that the body is not inter- incidental to our faith, but integral to our worship. We were made to be embodied, to experience life, pleasure, and limits in our bodies. When Jesus redeems us, the redemption occurs in our what? Bodies. And when we die, we will not float away to heaven and leave our bodies behind, but we'll experience the resurrection of our what? Bodies. Christ himself appeared in, after his resurrection in a mysterious, changed, but fleshly body. Even now, he remains in his body. 
The biblical call to an embodied morality comes not out of a disdain for the body and its appetites, but out of the understanding that our bodies are central to our life in Christ. Our bodies and souls are inseparable. Therefore, what we do with our bodies, what we do, what we do with our bodies and what we do with our souls are always intertwined. They're entwined together. So, what does this mean for us? We want to reclaim the art of gathering by first becoming embodied in a time of digital disembodiment. Liturgy forms us, and our bodies are instruments of worship. Jonathan Lehman says this, What makes gathering so powerful is the fact that you are physically there. You see, you feel. Unlike watching something on a screen in which you are bodily removed from the thing you're watching, a gathering literally surrounds you. It defines your entire reality. Think about what Paul says to the church in Romans. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your thoughts, your theological understanding, your mind, your bodies. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper what? Worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, and be but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It all begins as us being embodied beings. What we do absolutely changes how we think and live. This formative reality of the church it carries us when our hearts are far from these things. Quickly, Robert Mulholland. When we don't feel like worshiping, the community should carry us along in its worship. When we can't seem to pray, community, pray, community prayer should enfold us. When the scriptures seem close for us, the community should keep on reading, affirming, and incarnating around us. Shortly said, faith begets faith. Worship begets worship. Generosity begets generosity. When you show up and participate in the Southern Gathering, it begets the things you want to see in your life. Next, we want to be committed in a time of limitless choice. The only way a community can grow together in intimacy is if people are showing up to do that. That's it. How do you become close to somebody? By spending what with them? Time. That's how. It's not rocket science. If you are never at the Sunday gathering, how could you be known? You can't. If you're not showing up to the Sunday gathering, how can you know others? You can't. You have to show up. Come embodied. And so um, there are all sorts of choices around us. I realize it is a sacrifice to choose to show up, but it is a sacrifice of love for the other. It is a sacrifice of I'm showing up thinking about the others. It's choosing to be committed when there are endless choices for you to make. And lastly, we want to be communal in a time of radical isolation. I love this line by Leslie Newbegin who says this, none of us can be made whole till we are made whole together. In a world that's dying for a place to belong, we want to be a belonging kind of people. And so I'm going to ask you to stand, if you're able, and we're going to enter into a time of response. you just join me in 
closing your eyes and just placing out your hands as a sign and symbol to God that you want to receive from him. My sense is this morning is that this has given you something to think about. Maybe I didn't fully convince you. Maybe you're still a skeptic. But it's put something before you to really consider. Maybe for others of you, it's affirmed what you've already believed. And it's stirred you up to continue on. And still for others is an invitation to actually say yes to more. That you have said yes, but your desire is to say yes to more because you realize how important it is. Wherever it is that you find yourself at today, we want to be a community who responds when we feel like God speaks to us. Through our bodies. Not just in our mind, not just in our intellect, but with our whole self telling God, I hear you, Lord, and I'm saying yes to what you have for me. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to enter into a time of response. And what this looks like is if you feel God speaking to you, we're going to invite you to, embodied, come to the front with your hands open as just a sign and symbol to saying, God, I hear you and I want more. And we're going to sing as a community, declare truth over one another. And the song we're going to sing is a song of invitation. Come, Spirit of God. It's just a way of saying, we want you to move here. And as you come forward with your hands open, it's a sign to the people who, who love to pray for you, uh, others to come and to lay a hand on you and to pray for you. They're not going to interview you. They're not going to get your email for texting up, updates or anything like that. They just want to bless you and the work that God is doing in your life. And so for this next chunk of time, would you just be open to what God might be doing in you? And would you be open to responding to how he's speaking to you by coming forward, opening up your hands and saying, yes, Lord, I hear you. Let us respond together.